Welcome to Two Psychologists for Beers. I'm Ewell Enbar. With me here, as always, is my friend and co-host, Alexa Tollett. Alexa, you look cheerful today. What's going on? Oh, I'm sort of surprised that you say that because, um, well, today was the first day I taught classes, which is not a reason to not be cheerful, but I do feel tired. Um, so I taught back-to-back classes before I came home to do this, and now I'm worried that I'm not going to be in my top podcast form. So if I say something inarticulate or sound sluggish today, then I blame I blame teaching. Um, but I, I think I am in a good mood for my my last class um, that I taught was history and systems. And so like on the first day, I asked them to think about things that we don't normally think of as abnormal behavior that could be classified that day. And so they gave me like a lesson on um, popping other people's pimples, which apparently is like a common <laughs> is that a thing? behavior. Um, and then there's like apparently like a, like a, doc, a pimple popping doctor. I don't know. Anyways... Um, yeah, they, they made me smile. That's the first time hearing about it. And I am disgusted and somewhat morally judging the people who engage in this practice. Yeah. Um, how are you, Yoel? I'm doing well. Um, as you can see, I'm in front of my new podcasting closet. Um, Uh so yeah, we're, we're doing well here. We're getting ready to move again. I don't know about the closet situation in the new place. So you know, that could be potentially problematic. Oh no, what if you have to record in like a regular I, in room? A, in a real room. <laughs> I don't know what I would do with myself. Okay, Alexa, enough chit-chat. Uh, not that I don't love our little moments, uh, <laughs> but we have a guest today that I'm just dying to introduce. Uh, so we're joined today by Stefan Odenberg. He is a principal researcher at the University of Chicago who works on social perception. Uh, By training, he's actually a cognitive psychologist. Uh, He did his PhD in cognitive psych at Yale University. Uh, Stefan came to our attention as the second author on a recent paper called Deep Models of Superficial Face Judgment judgments that caused a lot of controversy online, uh, some of which we covered in our past episode of Face for Podcasting. So Stefan, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. This is my very first podcast, so I'm very excited to be on it. Wow. We are honored and excited that it's going to be us. So we're going to do a brief bit of talking about what we're drinking before we get started here. Uh, Stefan, for very good reasons, sadly is unable to drink, but that just means we're going to have to drink extra to make up for him. So Alexa, what have you got? Um, I have a familiar character, actually. So this is a Good People IPA. Um, You may remember this from the episode where we had uh, Jenny Cox on because it is her favorite beer um, and her husband brought it to her mid-podcast. You're familiar with this beer as well? Um, yes. Okay. I am. Okay. Man, everybody knows this beer but me. I feel left out. <laughs> and uh, I, I'm i not in a beer mood today for whatever reason. So I have this bottle of rye that I've nearly finished. It's a Sagamore Spirit Rye, actually, um, I believe from... Is it from upstate New York? Hold on. Let me check the bottle here. Um, Nope. Maryland. And uh, this was a gift to me from a friend of the show, Andres Montealegre, a uh, grad student at Cornell. I may have shouted him out before when I was drinking this ride previously, but I know it's good. And look, there's there's only a tiny bit left. So I may make it through the whole thing. Yeah. Daniel loves it. (laughs) Exactly right. Yeah. What better evidence is there? All right. Well, shall we crack them open? 
Wow. That is delicious and buttery as always. Yeah. Um, there's a reason why Jenny likes this beer, I think. Um, but also it's like kind of the perfect day for a beer here. Like it's the first day that's not swelteringly hot outside. Um, and yeah, uh, an IPA is kind of exactly what I'm in the mood for. So, well, I'm glad to hear that. You know what, before we get started, I do think our listeners want to know what's going on with your kitchen. Oh, I don't think that they care. (laughs) Today I looked at pictures of faucets and I chose faucets. Um, I'm hoping that we have a new kitchen by mid-September, but right now it is an empty room that is painted white. Um, And yeah, this is the kind of thing where um, you end up making these like extremely mundane decisions and like getting wrapped into caring about them or something. Like we went to the um, store to look at countertops And they were like, do you want your countertops to be beveled or not beveled? And I was like, this is mind numbing. Like I I have, there's literally no way I would never know if like, yeah, what the edge of your countertop looks like. Is it, so Um, is it like it has a sharp edge or it has like this kind of like cut off edge? That's what it's like. Did, what did you end up going for? I couldn't tell you. <laughs> I'm not even sure that we answered the question. I think we just started laughing and we're like, <laughs> you literally blacked out. You're like, this is not, this is not possible. I, you know, I don't think I've ever been in a position to choose either my faucets or my countertops. It's just been always whatever the place came with. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I don't think it matters. In this way though, you are more of an adult than I am. Oh, wow. That's rare. I think. <laughs> Uh, is it? Stefan, have you ever picked out any element of your kitchen? No, it's it's one of my dreams that I one day have the privilege to be able to do so, to be a homeowner that has control over my space and the aesthetic choices uh, to be able to shape it as I please. When you finally get the chance, will you choose beveled or not beveled? I think I'll have to, I'll have to, th- I'll have to check in with myself by then. My, my preferences may have changed so much in, in the intervening 10 years yeah. Between now and when I can finally have a home as an <laughs> academic. <laughs> you know, I feel like there's a strong case for beveled because if it's not beveled, then the edge is pointy. And if you like run into it accidentally, you could hurt yourself. It, yeah, you're right. It may actually matter. It just seems like a safety concern to me, really, more than anything. Okay, follow up, Stefan. Do you consider yourself an adult? Like, do you feel like you... um You've made it to full-on adulthood. Yeah, getting into the hard-hitting questions. (laughs) Um, Partially, I feel partially like an adult. There are some markers of adulthood that I've reached, like living on my own. Um, I have been married in the past. Uh, But then there are others that are still elusive, like owning owning a home. That would would be nice to have. Once Once I get that, and oh, once I have a home and a dog of my own, I think I will fully consider myself part of adult society. Mm-hmm. So here's something that like I uh, was meaning to ask you first before we get into anything else, Stefan. What the hell's a principal researcher? <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's business school speak for someone who has a PhD and does research at the business school. Uh, for legal reasons, I am not allowed to use the term postdoc in describing what my job is. Uh, that we won't go into um, for legal reasons. <laughs> but yes, that's that's what a principal researcher is. I, I, I have a doctorate and I do research. 
Interesting. So basically like a postdoc, but for legal reasons, not a postdoc. Yeah, definitely not a postdoc. Got it. Okay, we're clear on the fact that you are not currently a postdoc. (laughs) Uh, So we like to ask this question of all our academic guests, which is, um, we'd like to hear just a bit about your background. Like, who are you? Where are you from? How did you grow up? And what got you interested in the things that you now study? Like, you know, when did you decide that cognitive psychology was for you? And when did you decide that social perception specifically was something you were interested in looking at? Yeah, that, that could be a potentially long uh, answer, but I'll, I'll try to be as brief as I can. So for context, right now, I'm a principal researcher at Booth. Prior to that, I did my PhD at Yale in co- cognitive psychology. Prior to that, I did my undergrad in cognitive science and Japanese studies. And prior to that, I was born and raised in Trinidad and Tobago. And in Trinidad, you are, at least I was browbeaten into believing that there are three career options. You could be an engineer, a doctor, or a lawyer. And I didn't want to be any of those things. So I needed to find some way, some some fourth way to be. And as I surveyed the landscape of higher ed, I realized I did not have the money to be able to go to Canada or the UK as many of my peers would. And if I were to stay in Trinidad and go to the local state school, UWE, I would be forced into one of those three career paths. So I went and did a bunch of research on how schools work in the US, how to select them, how to apply to them. And these books were very, very useful. They helped me prepare for the SAT and select schools that would give me the requisite financial aid in order to attend them. Um, so as a result, I ended up at Dartmouth, where I started taking classes in all kinds of fields like psychology and computer science and philosophy and linguistics. And I was adrift. I didn't know what to major in because I loved all these things. And as I looked deeper into things, I realized I could do cognitive science. Cognitive science was a interdisciplinary major that they had that let me continue taking classes in all these different fields that excited me so much. So I did that. I uh, started doing research in in the school because I was eligible for a type of uh, a type of research assistantship for people who got good grades at the school. So I started doing research in primate neuroscience, doing data analysis on uh, neuronal data, and then eventually I kind of fell into into vision science into vision research. So I took a class with Juan Mokshim on attention and I loved it. So I um, asked her to be my thesis advisor. I ended up doing a thesis on uh, feature-based attention and how it's impacted by emotion, positive emotions in particular. And then I stayed on with her as a research assistant slash lab manager for a couple of years, um, doing more work on that and on fMRI then I applied to grad school, and then I got to Yale, where I worked with Brian Scholl. And while in one of his lab meetings, which was about this method of serial reproduction and iterated learning, um, it was it was a very inspiring lab meeting. At the, at the end of it, I asked if it had ever been done with faces, and he said, no, go do that. And that became my whole dissertation. Um, so in my dissertation, I looked at this notion that we have a mental de- default, that we have mental defaults in our heads that bias downstream perception, memory, potentially action, um, using the method of serial reproduction, which is akin to the children's game of telephone, uh, in which, you know, you start off with some message that gets passed on to the next person that gets passed on to the next person and so on. 
until the last person recounts what they heard and everybody erupts in laughter because it's so different from what the original message started out as. One of the cool things about this game and this method more generally is that the errors that people make are not entirely random, but in the direction of what they assume the message is most likely to be. So if everyone playing the game shares the same assumptions about the message, and if you play with a long enough chain of people, eventually you just get the assumption. The message transforms into that assumption like magic. So I use this method not with uh, linguistic stimuli, as is most common, but with faces in what I call the game of teleface. So I would flash a face at you very briefly, it goes away, and then a new face comes up and you have to try and morph it through some continuum of interest to select the face you originally saw. And that face that you select then gets fed to the next person who comes along in the chain of reproduction. And by looking at how the face changes as it passes from mind to mind, we get a sense of what people's default assumptions about faces are. So I did this as a case study, as a first case study um, with race in white participants, where I would show you a face that varied from white to black in some way, and then you had to morph it along a continuum of, of white to black. And what I found is that within 10 participants, within 10 steps, uh, people reproduce, white people reproduce the face as being white, even if you start with a recognizably black face. This bias is mitigated or eliminated when the face is angry and then tested on neutral faces. And I also did some work on looking at how emotion and gender interact with one another. So I could, within 10 steps, the, the details are, um, are difficult to state right here, but within 10 steps, you could make an angry woman's face turn into a happy man's face. Um, and for various reasons, this basically shows that there's a, there's a tight link in people's minds between anger and masculinity. Um, so yeah, that was my dissertation in a nutshell. And then when I got to Alex's lab at Princeton, I was, by then I was frustrated. I was very frustrated with the limitations in stimuli and face stimuli in face research, because I spent how many hundreds of hours, I cannot begin to tell you, creating stimuli, curating stimuli that looked good, that uh, my advisor agreed on. And there's just never enough. The faces are never diverse enough. Uh, these faces never give you enough control. So that's that's what led to us wanting to create new tools to be able to advance the, the field of face perception and research. Yeah, and so that's what led you to start working on this paper that caused all of the controversy, I guess. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that, that's exactly right. Um, so, you know, for context, when you're doing research on face perception or face memory or social perception, you need to use faces. And broadly speaking, you've got two approaches to how those face stimuli come about. One is to use real people's faces, uh, which are totally real, but have concerns about privacy and you have no control over them. You have no way of parametrically varying aspects of them. Or if you do parametrically vary aspects of them, it's extremely labor intensive um, and subject to the experimenter's biases. The second approach is that you use synthetic face stimuli that give you great control over the impressions they evoke, but then they don't look very real. Often they look like bald heads, bald mannequin heads on black backgrounds. So I wanted faces that would be photorealistic, highly diverse racially in terms of age, in terms of gender, everything that respected people's privacy. Um, and that allowed me to answer all kinds of new questions that I'm only just beginning to scratch the surface of. Uh, so that's that's where these these models originally came from, and they were inspired by my own advisor's work, fifteen 
years prior, where he used these exact methods on face gen faces, which is a type of three-dimensional uh, face modeling software, to create models of impressions. And hundreds and hundreds of groups have used these faces without incident. Uh, so I thought of this project as FaceGen 2.0, in a sense, where we're bringing now advances, recent advances in machine learning and deep learning to uh, cognitive and social psychology. I have a silly question and then a more serious question. My silly question is, um, I often have the experience, especially when people were wearing masks um, during like the peak of COVID, um, of seeing somebody in a mask like let's say having a student in the class um, and then at the end of the class, perhaps seeing them outside or something like that and being like, wow, your face is not what I expected. Um, and so when you're like talking about these sort of like defaults, is it like, is it the case that there could be a face that I could see where I would be like, that's exactly what I expected. Your face looks exactly like what I, <laughs> <laughs> I believe so. I believe so. And in fact, you know, there are, there are probably methods that we could use to do that. Right. Like, um, I think of uh, the bubbles method or or you could use reverse correlation or something, right? Where you, you keep right, the, right. the top half of the face constant, but then vary the lower half of the face. Okay. Um, I totally think that. And I think it'll probably be idiosyncratic. <laughs> <You're>... <laughs> so there's like a face that I'm picturing and a face that you're picturing. Okay, yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's going to depend on the perceptual diet of faces that we've encountered over the course of our lives, but also potentially oh, I see. some idiosyncratic uh Variance is contributed by whatever, you know, strangeness is attributable to us ourselves. Um, okay, so a more serious question, perhaps related is, um, yeah, why is it important to have this amazing database of faces? So you mentioned that you were frustrated by the limitations of the stimuli that were available. Um, like what kinds of questions open up when you have this bigger database? So one thing that opens up, actually, that's going to be really fun, I've contacted a number of companies about this, I'm waiting to hear back, is audit studies. So there's a rich tradition in social psych and economics of doing audit studies of various companies or industries like academia, where you might send out a resume to a given employer or to a given professor and ask them to evaluate it for hire. Mm -hmm. And what they do is they vary little details about the resume. For example, the name at the top of the resume may be evocative of a given uh, racial or gender category, right? Mm -hmm. So you've got a resume that says gender McGrace, um, and you see to what extent that impacts hiring decisions. This is always done with linguistic stimuli for the most part, from what I could tell, because linguistic stimuli are easy to vary. But it is the case that now with employment applications like LinkedIn, people may find themselves discriminated against on the front end based on their profile pictures, various mm -hmm. aspects of their profile pictures. It need not even be racial or gender in nature. It could be a kind of facism where people that look more hireable, whatever that concept is, mm -hmm. end up with more opportunities than people that don't. And that's not something I think was possible before we developed these tools, at least not at scale. Right, so it provides a tool among other things, possibly for um, for studying discrimination and, and prejudice and um, and doing so in a way that's perhaps more generalizable than methods that have been used in the past. That's exactly right. Um, one of the questions we're working on, for example, is what are people's concepts of a scientist, right? Mm -hmm. How does that impact, or rather, how does that interact with their 
own gender, with their political beliefs, with their levels of hostile or benevolent sexism. And these are the kinds of questions that are important to answer in order to combat the kind of discrimination that has occurred, such that some people are left out of different fields. Backing up to your dissertation for for just a second, um, you know, this is the first that I've heard of this method, which sounds super interesting. I'm also struck by the fact that this might have had some like kind of basis and personal relevance for you, because you look sort of like ambiguously non-white, right? In a way that I imagine people react to certainly differently than just like a person who just reads as like completely white, right? So was that part of mm-hmm. the part of your interest in this work? Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> I, for my whole life, I have been racialized as every race under the sun. I can't think of a single racial category or subcategory that I haven't gotten from someone out, out there. Right. So in Japan, for example, they called me Obama-kun. They called, the kids would call me Obama. Um, in the US, I've gotten that I was black. I've gotten that I was Indian. I've gotten that I was Mediterranean. I've gotten that I was Middle Eastern. Um, in France, I've gotten a woman asking me if I was Arab. They, they don't know what to make of me. And I personally believe, as I believe most scientists do, that race is a socially constructed category. And I didn't need to be told this <laughs> by uh, people in the field because it's something that I had experienced for my whole life. People didn't know what to make of me. Um, and it would be nice if people would put less stock in these kinds of categories in my mind. Uh, so my work aims to to understand where these where these kinds of ideas come from and how they can be combated. I remember when we Alexa and I talked about this paper. You know, I was kind of excited about it for the same reason that you just outlined, which is like, oh, what a great toolkit for researchers who want to study social judgments of faces, right? So basically, it allowed you to hold certain important things constant, like the race, for example, and then very other things that you might be interested in. I was like, oh, that's like just an awesome tool. And that kind of was what I was most excited about with that paper. And it sounds like for you too, that's how you're thinking about it. And kind of like, you know, a new and improved version of the stuff that Alex Todorov did back in the day, which probably lots of people in um, social psych and beyond are familiar with these like kind of face more faces that look, uh, you know, they don't look realistic, right? They look like, like you said, like floating hairless heads. Um, but that wasn't the reaction um, that this paper got online and people like got very upset about that. So mm-hmm. I'd be curious, you know, what was your experience of you know, how did you learn, in fact, that like people were getting mad about this? And what did that feel like for you kind of from the inside? Yeah, so it might help to to just start from the beginning a little bit, which is that as I'm making these models with the whole team, right, we talk about the potential uses of it, the potential misuses of it, and we put safeguards in place for all those misuses, as we discuss as well in our long-form response, which we can talk about shortly. But this work was not made in a vacuum. It was made while talking to literally hundreds and hundreds of people from across the field and from outside of our own field as well. I had shown this work to people from all different backgrounds across the world, and nobody complained about it. I had gotten enthusiasm and excitement about it from all kinds of people. 
um, people did push back in cases, but then we, we had a discussion and I incorporated their advice and it was all fine. Um, for, for context, the day that the paper came out and the Twitter thread came out, I was at the annual meeting of the Midwestern Psychological Association here in Chicago. And I had given a talk at a symposium about face perception, outlining the work. Then I had taken a bunch of people, or rather a bunch of psychologists from MPA, then went to MindWorks, which is our Museum of Behavioral Science that Chicago Booth opened. At that museum, there is a photo booth. And at that photo booth, powered by our technology, you can learn about the science of first impressions, morph your face along some of these attributes, and learn why it's a bad idea to be judging people based on their faces or based on literal single images of their faces. And there was no, there was, and I believe continues to be no backlash from within our community of psychologists, of people who understand the work, who know who we are, who trust us. The backlash seemed to come from scholars from outside of the field who either did not read the paper or who misread it or who malread it. People who read it as uncharitably as humanly possible, twisting the message of the paper in on itself so that it ended up having the reverse message. So when those thought leaders end up leading their followers off of an intellectual cliff, uh, it is no surprise that it would get some kind of backlash from the general public, from lay people who don't have necessarily the training or the access to be able to go get the paper. Actually, the paper was open access, so never mind that. But people who don't necessarily have the training to understand what the paper says. I saw some lay people, for example, with hundreds of likes saying that we only tested 30 people for these models. And no, <laughs> we tested well over 4,000 people in over 10,000 sessions, right? The 30 number comes from the number of unique participants that rated each individual face, but there were over a thousand faces to be rated. So what did it feel like? The first day that the paper came out and the tweet came out, it was fine. There was no backlash. But a few days later, the backlash started to accrue and I was confused at first. I was confused about why scholars were dunking on us in the public square in language that is just reflective of how, how they misread the paper. Um, and the first day I was fine. I just dismissed it and sloughed it off. But by the second day, it started to take its toll. And I got more and more and more upset. And because there was so much misinterpretation being spread about around Twitter, we decided as a group that we needed to write a response. But the response wouldn't come out just as a tweet thread, I don't think it's possible to have nuanced discussions on Twitter based on my experience uh, with this. So we wrote this long form response, but the week that it took to write that long form response was one of the worst weeks of my life. I got about two hours of sleep a night, if that. I lost about six pounds, which, you know, the, every cloud has a silver lining, got me to my goal weight. So that was nice. Uh, yeah, right. So you can thank the the <laughs> online mob for that. Oh god. I could I could thank them for helping me lose the the final um bits of weight that I wanted to lose to reach my goal for the summer. Um so yeah, we we wrote this this long form response and once it came out, there was no further criticism it would seem. The people involved did not uh come out with a second round of criticism. There weren't really many in the way of public apologies. There were, there were a few people who reached out to us saying that they were sorry um, about the role that they played in the online mob. Um, but for the most part, the criticism just died down. And there, 
was never any criticism, real criticism to begin with from within our own field. Uh, so yeah, it was, it was rough and it was harrowing. It felt like, you know, I wasn't sure if my reputation would be damaged forever and ever here on out. And I don't know if it has been. Uh, I'm kind of in the dark when it comes to that, at least outside of the field. Um, and even speaking out like this causes some anxiety for me because I'm scared of it uh, inducing a second reaction from people who maybe feel a little bit called out about this. But I'm not here to, to pick a fight. I'm, I'm just here to help people understand that when you're critiquing work, that you should do your due diligence to understand what the work is really about, who is making the work, what they're making it for. Um, there were some errors in judgment that we made in the sense that I didn't realize that this work would reach this far. I didn't realize it would have this much reach. My mental model up to now for when tweet threads come out is that it's kind of like being at a conference and, you know, the people next to you at a conference session and a poster session um, are your audience, right? Um, other people in the field, other people who understand the work, who share your interests. But because this work lies at the intersection of so many different fields and has implications for other fields, it seems to have struck a nerve. And I need to be sensitive to that moving forward in terms of how the work is framed and what is put out uh, to begin with. Yeah, it's like a little bit of a monkey's paw situation, right? You're like, wow, I really wish this work would reach a broad audience. Mm -hmm. And then <laughs> mm -hmm. it's like, be careful what you wish for. But, you know, I mean, you're being very diplomatic, but it seems fair to me to call some of the initial kind of Twitter discussion of this just misinformation. I mean, it was mm -hmm. just wrong about what you were trying to do. And mm -hmm. it was wrong about what you did. And that's the stuff that went super viral, right? And and then as you point out to people who really don't have the kind of background in the area to um, read the paper and draw their own conclusions who are just going off of what they, you know, a tweet thread or something like that. But I mean, is that too strong, like to call it misinformation? I mean, insofar as I don't know what the intentions of the people behind these initial statements were. Um, I, I believe that in their minds, they were well-meaning. Um, but it is the case that their interpretation of the paper was wrong. Um, I don't agree with it. I don't see how a normal reading of the paper could lead you to those sorts of conclusions, at least from the kinds of uh, scholarly backgrounds that you or I might have. Um, and it's just the case that that kind of information tends to go viral much more so than anything uh, reflective of reality. So, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to, to put my, myself in their shoes, you know? I'm impressed by your attributional generosity. And I do think that many people who joined in probably thought that they were doing the right thing or... Mm -hmm. Um, sticking up for the right values or whatever. But I do think that, and I'm going to just in order to be minimally classy, not name names, but I think there are some people who gin up outrage for clout. Mm. And, you know, we can't ignore that that's a fact and mm. that Twitter rewards that kind of behavior, right? So mm -hmm. there are some people who do it strategically because it gets them attention and followers. And I think that for some folks involved in this, that's 100% what this was. 
I wanted to ask a little bit more about, so you mentioned that you think that it hit a nerve and you also commented on how prior to releasing the paper, you had gotten feedback from, from many people of different backgrounds about the finding, but I think maybe also suggested that a lot of those people would be in the field. Um, and then, you know, uh, of course, like once the conversation started on Twitter, probably many of the commenters are outside of the field. And I, I guess I wanted to sh- to briefly share an experience that that I had um, that is dissimilar in many ways from the one that that you had, um, but had this sort of like a disciplinary division in common, maybe. So we had a a graduate student in our department was interested in studying sort of the response to some of the laws coming out about critical race theory and like banning the teaching of that in colleges and, um, and also primary education and things like that. It's not my area of expertise at all. Um, this grad student wanted to, um, sort of like, I guess there were a few questions like, um, primarily like what do students think about learning this stuff? You know, should we do, do students want to be learning this stuff? Do they think it's problematic to be learning it? Like, um, sort of get the student's perspective on it. I thought it was a really interesting question. Um, And so we ended up sort of like coming up with a study design that um, had what we thought were like items that were misattributed to critical race theory um, or like um, have been been claimed to be part of critical race theory, but actually are misrepresentations of it. And then like items that are more accurate. Um, to what the theory is actually saying. And we wanted to sort of see, you know, what students thought about these different things and how valuable it would be to learn them. And for us, we were sort of the, um, the criticism of our approach happened um, much earlier in the process. So we asked um, some humanities researchers essentially, and some legal researchers who have a lot of expertise in this area, what they thought of our study design, you know, recognizing in our case, we have very little expertise, which is, of course, not true in your case. Um, and they hated it. They were like, this item that, you, that you're asking people about is not critical race theory. And we were like, well, we're not saying that it's critical race theory. We're like, our, our whole point is that some of them are and some of them aren't. And we just got such a negative reaction from um, enough people that, that we felt had a lot of expertise, but th- that were not psychologists that we were like, okay, maybe we should just say this is like, you know, this is like not our area. And I guess I just wanted to know a little bit more about what you thought about the the disciplinary divide. So like, are there these assumptions that we make in social psychology that like, you know, um, that that we can in our stimuli, the, the, the thing that people seemed to be reacting to, I think was, like you are reinforcing in your use of these items as stimuli, these misunderstandings, right? And I guess I saw the parallel to your work in that maybe, do you think that one thing that people are having this reaction to or the nerve that it's hitting is that they're like, you're you're suggesting that these stereotypes are valid just by using stimuli that are varying people in a stereotypical way. Like, do you think that that's part of what's happening? Yes, I think that that's exactly what's happening. But they're missing something there. They're missing the difference between reality and perception of reality. That it is not about reinforcing stereotypes. It is about elucidating them, about mm-hmm. understanding how these stereotypes manifest visually in different kinds of people. If you want 
to combat these kinds of things. You need to understand the content of them first, mm-hmm. right? That's 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 what I think anyway. That's what the field thinks and has been doing for decades and decades and decades. Mm-hmm. Um, there are ways in which researchers can be doing that kind of reinforcement, right? So for example, uh, Joel Martinez, who is a former lab mate of mine back when we were at Princeton, he just came out with a paper about uh, what he calls facecraft, um, which is the idea of sort of reifying different social groups um, by means of the stimuli you use or the methodological choices that you might make as an experimenter. And that can happen when, for example, you just uncritically select faces that look a certain way to you, right, as the experimenter, right? Or I need to look at how um, pe- how participants differ in how they will treat white faces versus black faces. So as the experimenter, I'm just going to pick out a bunch of faces that look white to me or look black to me without understanding that there's a critical distinction between uh, race, which is a a made-up concept, and racialization, which is foisting race on people. So by using stimuli that are explicitly designed to look like a certain race, as opposed to, quote-unquote, be a certain race, you you can try to get around this, which is what our models do. Our models don't model race, they model perceived race, for example, right? And that is completely different from the reality of things. Um, so I feel like there's this knee-jerk reaction from other people because of the long history of racism, of physiognomy, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't take into account the nuance involved in using these techniques because we've thought very deeply about these things um, and how they might be used to help. Do you think that any of these critics had a point? Like, if you go and you reread all of this online criticism, is there anything you think in all of that that's valid? Or is it just pure outraged misunderstanding of what you are trying to do? Yeah. So I will say it's hard for me to read some of these criticisms because they are largely wrapped up in ad hominem as well. Um, It is difficult to, to have the stomach to read them. But one of the better criticisms was about dual use of the technology, the idea that it could be misused uh, regardless of our intentions for it. And I think that that's a valid criticism in the abstract. It's not a valid criticism in practice, given the safeguarding measures that we took for the actual technology involved, because before the work came out, you could manipulate faces however you wanted using synthetic faces, using Photoshop, using all sorts of other means, using face app, using face tuners, all sorts of stuff. And after the work came out, you could do those same things. But now with the added benefit of all this cool research that you could do to understand uh, how bias is propagated in society at scale. So I get the, the dual use concern more generally, but I don't think and as a result, that's that's something that we focused on a lot in our long-form response, right? Because this is not something that we stated explicitly in the paper. Um, so that that's a real concern, but I think that we addressed it in our response. Yeah, so when you say safeguards, um, do you mean the fact that you patented this stuff? Because that, in fact, kind of ironically, mm. was something that some folks jumped on as mm. evidence of some sort of sinister plot that you guys had to... I'm not really sure what the sinister plot was supposed to be, but definitely yeah. the patent was evidence of it. 
Yeah, yeah. No, that was that was obviously evidence that we were top hat donning, monocle wearing, mustache twilling Saturday morning cartoon villains. Um, but you know, it is what it is. Uh, the patent, for what it's worth, was gotten defensively so that we could have some kind of control over how the technology is used out in the wider world. Um, ideally, we would like to make this into some kind of service that researchers could use. So if you've got a .edu address, you're doing IRB approved research, you get access to a cloud-based API that lets you uh, do inference or transformation in faces. Um, but yeah, to my knowledge, we don't have any sinister plots. Uh, we're not here to in invoke some social credit dystopia on the basis of your face, given that the work is very clearly about how people uh, form impressions from images of faces. It's not about stable personality traits that you can infer from the size of your nose or the shape of your ears or something. That would be physiognomy. Um, and there are companies that do that, by the way, or that claim to be able to do that <laughs> uh, out there, but we are not among them, thankfully. Right. I, I mean, and as we talked about in the podcast episode about this, Alex and I, you know, that may be part of what sensitized some folks here. Um, yet you mentioned uh, that, you know, this criticism is ad hominem and, and hard to read. And I, I get that. To me, like having the full context here, to be honest, like the main reaction I have is just the complete ridiculousness of many people who are tenured, you know, senior academics who at least, you know, appear are are white appearing going and <laughs> yelling at uh, <laughs> a non-white postdoc about being a racist. It's just it's just fucking funny more than anything. It's just like yeah. right? It's clownish. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I will say my first reaction was to laugh, but um, it, it did eventually evoke tears. Um, yeah, it was it was weird. It was very strange to be a literal immigrant scholar of color from the Caribbean, <laughs> being called a racist by senior white academics from old colonial powers, as if they were like pushed atop the parapets of their ivory towers glowering at us like grim gargoyles calling us racist it was it was really funny um and i i hope it inspires some some degree of reflection in the people involved uh i don't expect to get an apology public or otherwise there were such people and that was that was a heartening experience to see that they they recognized their role in the pylon and uh couldn't countenance it um and we got an outpouring of support from our own community privately um there weren't exactly very many people willing to stand up uh, to the bullies as they were going on about their business. But it's hard. Like, I see why they wouldn't do it. Um, so that's why I ducked and covered for the duration of the incident. We put out this long-form response, which seems to have put out the fires. Um, and I just hope that this kind of thing doesn't happen to other people in the future. I imagine it will, because that's the state of the discourse on Twitter. But Yoel has sort of like, you sort of implied that um, maybe the motive of some of the people who are criticizing the paper on Twitter is just to sort of like stir shit up or whatever. Um, but Stefan, you, you mentioned that some people apologized later. Um, they sort of looked back and they, they said, you know, that was cruel of me to pile on. Um, in those cases where people seem 
to at least be able at some point to admit, um, to, to recognize, I guess, some of the, the harm that they did. What do you think was the initial motivation to make that post, right? So it seems like maybe they weren't initially um, malicious or at least not so malicious that they weren't like open to, to changing their minds and um, apologizing. What are they, what are they trying to do when they post something like that? I wonder too. I mean, I don't know. Cause I, I'm not big on Twitter or, or social media or anything like that. But my, mm. my guess is that you see a post that is highly inflammatory from someone you respect. Say you see it from a colleague or someone you follow on Twitter and you mm -hmm. see this person calling this work racist and evil. Mm -hmm. And that gets you angry because you think of yourself as a good person that is not racist or evil and you're against those things, rightly so. So then you come in and you start to, to poke and prod as well and say, well, what, do, what are you doing here? Why are you doing this? What's this about? Um, I think it comes from a, a general sense that you want to be part of a moral movement. You want to be on the right side of history. You want to be the kind of person that would protest against evil as it is manifested in society. And you can do this from the comfort of your own bedroom while on your phone, uh, you know, mm -hmm. wrapped up in your comfy blankets, right? So why not? Mm -hmm. Why not do it? The The cost is low. There are, the reputational costs are low if you get it wrong. Uh -huh. um, it's all good. What I find striking is that, like, what you said is you guys posted this response about a week um, after the initial controversy. And I do want to talk a bit more about what was in there. Um, and it sort of shut people off. But then it's not like people publicly said, hey, we really got this wrong. You know, mea culpa. Sorry. It's, they just sort of slink away quietly, you know? Mm -hmm. And, like, mm -hmm. I, I know I get sort of ragey about this and I'm trying to restrain myself. But, like, I kind of feel like it's on you if you're, like, I amplified this thing that I now no longer believe, you know, perhaps for good reasons or, you know, reasons that at least were, you know, heartfelt. But then if you decide that you are wrong, you should say so. And I don't think public apology is too much to ask for if you've mm. fucked up this way. Alexa, you look skeptical. No, I, I'm, I'm not. <laughs> okay. No, I think that if you're going to um, apologize to somebody in private for publicly shaming them, then you should also apologize in, in public. Yeah, I would say mm. private apology is better than no apology. Sure. But yeah, but yeah. yeah, I mean, yes, the apology should match the transgression. There was at least one such apology that was both private slash public. Um, but yes, you're, I, I believe if I were in that position where I realized, oh, no, I actually... Um, you know, uh, amplified misinformation about younger scholars of color work. Um, I would, um, I would probably like to think that I would publicly apologize for that. That doesn't seem like it's right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I know of one person as well. And, you know, I haven't chatted with him and I don't want to just like throw his name out there, but like, I, I know who you are and good for you, but nobody else did. Right. So yeah, one dude. Um, I think this might be a great time to take a quick break. Um, I will go, well, actually I probably should be drinking some water, but, um, maybe Alexa wants another beer. I actually think I'm going to stick with the same one. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're going to yell at us on Twitter and we're finally going to be canceled for this, Alexa. That'll be the thing that does it. Not yeah. drinking enough beer because Appropriately normally so. we're so good about that. Exactly. Exactly. All right. See you in a sec. Drowning, I would 
face before my friend But I don't know if you know who I am Well I was there and I saw what you did I saw it with my own two eyes So you can wipe off that grin And know where you've been It's all been a pack of lies I can feel it coming in the air tonight Oh Lord I've been waiting for this moment for all my life Oh Lord I can feel it coming in the air tonight Oh Lord I've been waiting for this moment for all my life Oh Lord Oh Lord Welcome back. This is the part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. We are on Twitter at Four Beers Pod, where you can at mention or DM us. Uh, if you'd rather email, our show's email address is fourbeerspod at gmail.com. Finally, our website is fourbeers.com, where you can find any of our episodes, and you can drop us a line there as well if you'd like. If you're enjoying the show, please do take a second to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or the podcast podcast platform of your choice. It just helps other people discover the show, and we enjoy reading the reviews. Alexa, anything you'd like to add? Sounds good, you will. Excellent. All right, so um, drink update. Uh, I have decided to switch to a different rye because I'm going to hoard <laughs> this special rye for later. <laughs> um, uh, so I have a bottle of Sazerac rye um, that... Uh, all of these bottles of booze, uh, you know, survived the apartment fire, so I'm very attached to them. Um, but nonetheless, I'm I'm going to drink them. Um, mm-hmm. It does not seem to have been damaged by the fire, thankfully. Uh, so yeah, uh, that's what I've got going on. Um, what about you? Um, I'm sticking with the same beer. Yeah, all same beer, Alexa. Not compensating for Stefan's lack of drinking at all. I know we made big promises. Well, I've actually been drinking kind of heavily, and I may get less and less coherent. And you're apparently like uh, low energy and rambly. So this is really going to go in some interesting direction. <laughs> That's why we're going to let Stefan do most of the talking. Yeah, I know. He's doing great. <laughs> he should be hosting this fucking podcast. He's very sober, very articulate. Yeah, really seems to have a lot of interesting things to say. All right, Alexa, you want the next question? Yes, I do. Um, so, um, Stefan, you were talking a little bit about how you feel like uh, people twisted the message of the paper um, and turned it into the opposite or of what was intended. Um, And you were also talking a little bit about, um, I guess, people wanting to be part of a moral movement. So, I mean, you study um, face perception and clearly within the context of stereotyping and bias and things like that. And so I was wondering, I mean, what are your hopes for this kind of research? Do you think that, um, that it can push us forward in in terms of our understanding of prejudice and discrimination and the ways that we respond to that? Like, what's your sort of dream for the impact of this kind of work? My dream is that we have a deep understanding of what the origins of visual stereotypes are, what their 
what the circumstances under which they operate are and how to combat them by via an understanding of those two things. So, for example, I could imagine work on pain, pain perception, right? So this is something that is of growing interest to the field. For example, white doctors are less able to perceive pain on black faces, right? And this leads to underdiagnosis and undertreatment of various conditions. What if we were able to use our tool to be able to uh, help doctors understand what that pain looks like, whether by tr- by performing a training regime on them or by giving them some sort of tool that allows that does the reading into the face for them? Um, this is just one example, but this you could as you start to think about these things, you can get excited about it, right? Um, so that that's kind of my hope, and and to to move beyond just faces to also be able to characterize the biases people have about bodies, about poses, postures, about voices. Right. In talking to you as I am right now, I have a particular timbre and accent, and I continue to wear my Trinidadian accent with pride. But there may be cases where it leads to lesser outcomes for me than if I had decided to adopt an American accent, which, you know, having lived here for 15 years, I can do if need be, um, and which I do use under certain circumstances when confronting, say, the police or border patrol under hostile <laughs> conditions. Um, but yeah, so in an ideal world, we've got these, these, these models that let you just understand where people are being misperceived and misrepresented out in the world. I didn't know that you could control whether you adopt your, so I feel like I've lost my Canadian accent and I feel like it wasn't my choice. I would, I would have kept it if I wanted to, but every Mm -hmm. time somebody like rolled their eyes or like, like did like a double take when I said the word about, I just like, it's gone. Or at mm. least I think it's mostly gone. There are there are a few words where I still say it. And yeah, I can't switch back to it. Mm. Even if you were back in Canada, even when you're amongst your family and they like? I think when I'm around my family, it comes out a little bit more, but it doesn't feel very controllable or voluntary. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I just, I, <laughs> that, that may just be one of, one of my uh, idiosyncratic abilities. Um, uh, I don't know, because I'm, I'm good at accents and, and uh, pronouncing things in foreign languages and stuff. That's, that's <laughs> <one of> my... <laughs> you should pronounce uh, Yoel's beers for him. Yeah, no, I can use the help. So frighteningly, Alexa, somebody told me recently that I'm starting to sound Canadian. Oh, I know. Congratulations. <laughs> Thanks. We've swapped. I don't want yep. it, though. I feel like it's just impinging on me. Okay, we're getting really off topic now. We are, we are. <laughs> yeah, okay, back on topic. Thank you for that, Alexa. So uh, yeah, Stefan, you were talking about sort of the the broader context of the research and why do this. And this is some of the stuff that you guys brought up in your response letter, which you've mentioned uh, a few times um, and which was, I thought, really impressively written, but did take you guys you know, a week or so to, to put together. So uh, we will link to that entire thing in the show notes, but are there any other highlights from that piece that you wanted to put out there now? Well, that's a good question. Um, so we talked, we actually covered a lot of the stuff in here, I think, including the uh, safeguards. We talked about what the research was about. We talked about my origins. I don't think there's anything from the response in particular that I'd like to add other than just a general note for people that it's very easy to get wrapped up in these kinds of 
online discussions and not consider that there's a person behind the work. Um, and to just consider what impact, if any, your rhetoric might be having on their personal life. Um, and whether or not it's justified in light of the things you have read of the source materials. It is important that you engage with the actual paper, with the work as it is, that you read it charitably, that you steel man the, the claims, as opposed to attacking straw men of what you believe the work is about. Um, you know, not since the Wizard of Oz has a man been made of so much straw, in my opinion, as what people were lighting on effigy of what they thought our work was. But, you know, such is life. Yeah, well, we will link that, and I encourage everybody to check it out. And I was impressed, too, with how gracious you you were to your critics after having been through this, like, very unpleasant experience that I think, I mean, I'm mad on your behalf, right? And it wasn't even <laughs> me who was <laughs> who was being yelled at. Um, I appreciate it. <laughs> uh, yeah, you're well, you're welcome. Um, it, it does discourage me about just kind of online discourse in general, particularly mm-hmm. about anything that's that's complicated or technical, where mm-hmm. it seems like, you know, people just got basic facts wrong. Um, so these aren't like questions of opinion. These are like, you know, how many subjects were in the study or whatever. And that stuff just rocketed around like crazy. And obviously most people are not reading the original material or, or just weren't qualified to evaluate it. And I, I just don't know really what you do about that when there's you know a global network of people who get mad about something who just don't really have the tools to evaluate the thing properly or to like really know what the facts are like it just seems like a recipe for disaster it does seem like a recipe for disaster i mean at the individual level what people can do is just read carefully and form their own opinions about the work um at a more systemic level, the platforms could find ways to change the incentives so that it's not merely the most inflammatory or controversial uh, topics or tweets that get bandied about and rocket around, as you said. Um, and at the sort of field level, we ha- have the ability to, you know, sanction people for uh, for spreading misinformation. Um, I don't know to what degree that is a thing right now, but I feel like scientists have an important role to play in combating misinformation within their own fields. Did so I guess um with the with the criticism or uh the reaction to your work of what if this gets sort of like taken up by the wrong people or um that kind of thing, did you get uh enthusiastic responses from like physiognomy fans on Twitter or something like that? Not that I saw. No, <laughs> not that I saw. What a great, what a great question. Because there are physiognomy fans on Twitter, but I did not see anything being like, "Yes, good. Now we can induce physiognomy out in the world." Yeah, like you finally know, it, we have this tool. You at long last, <laughs> we have waited for ten thousand years. Yeah, no, I haven't seen anything like that. Uh huh. Right. <laughs> Yeah, they they seem to have missed this one somehow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think we we didn't go far enough. We got it. We got to take it to the next level. So okay, this is like a question that sort of, I mean, as somebody who I think is probably certainly on Twitter less than Yoel, uh, I I'm not sure how much you're on Twitter, Stefan. It sounds like um, not much, but maybe enough to have experienced 
this. Um, but do you, do you think that these, this sort of critical function of Twitter is ever productive? Like in an abstract way, it sounds like it has some good features to me. So, um, Twitter, I mean, it's like a really, really broad audience. So in some ways, yeah, maybe it's nice to have our work critiqued beyond our own community. Maybe that's more likely to, um, to shine light on blind spots and things like that. Um, or do you think that for things that are, I guess, like technical and maybe difficult to understand that it's just counterproductive? I think the incentives of the platform make it counterproductive. That's my issue. So if there, if there were a way to sort of both upvote and downvote comments on Twitter, maybe things would be a little bit more productive. Or if Twitter allowed comments that were slightly longer form, right? Because making big nuanced points on Twitter is simply unergonomic. It is not part of the design of the platform. Mm -hmm. It's designed for quick takes, memes, um, inflammatory one-liners. It's, it's not really designed for scientific discussion. Mm-hmm. I don't think that this is the right place to be having these, uh, these conversations. I think they should happen. They absolutely should. Um, and I'm happy to talk to anybody about any critique of the work, substantive critique of the work, um, as it is written. But Twitter is not the place for that, in my opinion. It sounds like you think we should all just move to Reddit. <laughs> it sounds a bit like Reddit, Leah. Reddit has its own problems, too. And I mean, honestly, in, in my ideal world, there would be like a kind of science super Reddit where there would be like, I mean, this may be a, a, a long-term project for me years down the line, or I'm happy if someone takes this idea and runs with it. But the idea would be that you, you put up your preprint or your paper on Reddit or super science Reddit, and it gets comments from reviewers, right? People in the actual field who are free to critique the work. And you can actually have a conversation with those reviewers and you can update the paper as time goes on with the more, with more definitive forms of it. And good work will, f- will float to the top and bad work will sink to the bottom. Um, I think that, that would be a more productive method than we currently have uh, for even peer review as it stands right now. Yeah. I, I know people have talked about some version of that and it sounds like a great idea to me. There's another function that Twitter has, which I think is valuable, which is it just lets people network, right? So in the open open science kind of early days, you know, there was a lot of Twitter-based networking that happened, which is great. And I think it's genuinely like very valuable for that. It's just like, you know, it also has this other function of like maybe thousands of people will yell at you. So it's like a nice pub where you can hang out with your friends, but there might be a random beating every so often, just like a crowd just might decide to kick the shit out of you. And then, <laughs> you know, can you blame lots of people for being like, you know, I'd rather not get randomly beaten. Yeah, I'd rather not be involved with that. So as a result, I've um, se- severely reduced the time that I spend on Twitter as well. Um, I, I really don't want to get involved in one of these random, random mobbings again. Uh, that would not be fun. Zero out of 10 would not recommend to anyone. But my experience reminds me of um, one of my favorite poems by by Mary Oliver. Uh, it's called The Uses of Sorrow. Have you ever heard it? It's a, it's a good poem. No, I don't know it. Yeah, it's a good poem. So it goes, um, let me find it real quick. Yeah, it goes, someone I loved once gave me a box full of darkness. It took me years to understand that this too was a gift. That's nice. 
See, I you're I feel like you're just constitutionally a better person than me because I'm just like stewing and angry about this. And I'm like, fuck these guys. And you're like, well, really, they've given me a gift though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it took some time, but I do think it was a gift. So, okay. Um, if this was a gift, so what are you taking from this experience? Um will you will you change things? So it sounds like you've maybe changed your Twitter usage. Are there other things you will change? Yeah, so it's I've certainly ch- changed my Twitter usage as the as the as the kids like to say these days. Um, you know, touch grass. I I've gone and I've touched grass. I've spent more time outdoors. I've spent more time with the people that I love in my life. Um, I am not changing anything about the work, the substance of the work, the topics of the work. I'm here and I'm not going anywhere. Um, but it has certainly made me more attentive to how I speak about others' work, how I approach others' work. Um, and more attentive to how I frame my own work so that it needs to be understood even by lay people outside of the field. I need to establish ethos, what this is for, why it is important, mm-hmm. how it can help you, right? And people that you love, how it can make life better. Because I believe in science. I believe in using the scientific method to reveal truth about the world. I believe in using software to build things that make people's lives better. And I, I have to find a way to communicate those values better in the work that I have so that there is no way that anyone can twist them. The work must be solid. It must stand on its own terms. I'm really curious about the specifics of that. So you, have you found ways of maybe um, framing the work differently or explaining the work more fully where you feel like you sort of get ahead of these knee-jerk reactions um, like, oh, you're reinforcing stereotypes or you're, this is physiognomy or whatever. Yeah, it's, it's an ongoing process because once you pair faces and AI, people immediately have this knee-jerk reaction that they think facial recognition uh-huh. and facial recognition is bad. They think clear view AI. They think um, bias AI that can't see black people but can see white people. They think, they think that. And it's not what we're doing. We don't do facial recognition. We have made a mirror that reflects the biases in society. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing racist or anything about that because those biases cause problems out in the world and it is vitally important to understand the circumstances under which they operate and how they can be combated. So I'm still sort of A-B testing what the best framing is for this stuff for people outside that doesn't cause them to have this knee-jerk reaction and shut their brains off and think, oh, facial recognition. Mm. Um, but one way is to sort of make them realize that they are doing these things, right? So I show, so for example, I like to lead my talks with an example, right? So I say, imagine that you've just moved to a new state or country and you're trying to get your license, your driver's license switched over. You're at the DMV, but the forms are very confusing. You're not sure what to do. So here are two people. And the question is, who would you rather ask for help of these two people? And the faces have been modified by our technology so that one looks extremely unfriendly and one looks very, very friendly. But they're equated on all sorts of different dimensions, like their race or their gender or their age. Um, So by making people realize that this is, hey, this is like a real thing. It like hits me in my gut. um, I think that it brings them on our side a little bit more. Um, Rather than saying, this is what we do. We are reinforcing these biases. It's that we are we are characterizing them. We're trying to understand where they come from. I think just even the experience of, um, I don't know, uh, 
being, I guess not exactly a participant, but um, seeing what actually is happening when people are making these kinds of judgments um, might take people a step further than the sort of knee-jerk reaction. Could you elaborate on that a little bit or what do you mean by that? Um, Maybe when people see like the title of a paper um, or Mm -hmm. like a brief tweet about the paper, um, what they're imagining is um, something that's more like actual like physiognomy, like we're telling you that we can um, identify a criminal based on their face. Mm -hmm. Um, And so by instead showing people um, we're studying people like you and how you do this, that might sort of shift their understanding of what you're studying. You know, you're not trying to show people, oh, I can, I can, you know, identify the criminal in this lineup. You're showing people mm-hmm. you are doing these kinds of things in subtler ways. Um, and that's what we're studying. Yeah, that's right. It's not that we can identify the criminal in this lineup. What we can say is in this lineup, this person is more likely to be discriminated against because right. people think they look more criminal. Mm-hmm. Right. That's the nature of the work. That's the difference between physiognomy and yeah. what we're doing in a nutshell. So, yeah, I, I hope to be able to communicate that better moving forward. It might just be that also as people get more used to these kind of novel methods that they have a kind of a context and a background that kind of brings that to the fore. So, you know, there's a ton of stereotyping research, for example, and people don't generally think, oh, you're studying these stereotypes because you endorse them. Um, and I think part of the reason for that is that we just have an experience with a long history of stereotyping research that makes us think like once when we even we see a title or an abstract, we're like, oh, these are people who think stereotypes are bad and who are trying to like in the long run mitigate their effects or whatever. Um, so I, I think part of the issue here is this technology is so new that people don't quite know where to slot this in. I also think that there are, you might have people outside of the field um, who do have that reaction to stereotyping research. Like, you know, a study where, um, yeah, like a stereotypical stimulus set was used or, you know, there was like the understanding when the stimuli were created that people might have a certain kind of stereotype. Um, And that's, I think, where my questions about sort of interdisciplinary um, boundaries and and how to communicate across disciplines um, comes from is that, yeah, I don't know. I think it's important for us to be able to, given given the right kind of forum, right? So not a forum like Twitter, but a forum where you're actually sort of carefully explaining things and listening to each other, explain the value in, in approaches like this. Um, and that is where I would start to, um, to take criticism more seriously when, if we're unable to do that, um, and people still maintain, um, maintain like a wariness about the work. Um, it starts to feel like we need to, to, to question ourselves more. I think I'm totally on board with that. I would just throw in, you know, who's doing the questioning matters. Like there is, you know, I've, I've done a lot of like political psychology stuff mm-hmm. and some of it is not, can be read as being unflattering towards conservatives. And there are some just yeah, conservative lay people who are always going to hate it. 
because mm-hmm. they're like, you're saying we're blah, blah, blah. And I don't think all the patient explaining in the world is going to change those people's minds. I think that there's also a difference in the goals of different fields and in what this kind, these kinds of questions are for. So, I mean, in science, our goal is to understand, right? Is to explain, ultimately, how the world works, how our mind works. In other fields, I think that there's more of an activist bent, that there's a goal to change things. Um, and I think quite, it's honestly a naive impulse to just say, oh, we don't need to understand the thing. We just need to go and destroy it by whatever means necessary. Um, and in the attempt to understand things, you're also legitimizing it. You're also reinforcing it, etc. And I think that that is a dangerous um way of thinking about things. Yeah, Alexa and I have a long-running argument about whether psychology should consider itself to be an activist <laughs> field. You just mm. stepped into a minefield, my friend. <laughs> Oops. Stay tuned for my debate versus Yoel slash Mickey. I'm not sure which. Yeah, it's not clear. That's in the works. Um, Alexa, do you want to ask the most important question? Here's the most important question, Stefan. What is acapella studies? <laughs> oh, that's that's just my tongue-in-cheek um, joke I have on my website that says um, I studied cognitive science, Japanese studies, and quote-unquote acapella studies. I spent a lot of time in an acapella group. I was with the Dartmouth Dodecaphonics, the oldest co-ed group that the school had. And uh, you can find our albums online. You can find them on Spotify. I have a solo on there. Um, in the air was my solo while I was there. It, it was fun. It was. It was. Oh, such we, a, it was oh a riot. we have found this. We've, you we've found it. Okay, great. To it. Yeah. No, Alexa <laughs> dug it up. And as it happens, I have an entire Spotify playlist of covers of "In the Air," so <laughs> that that's been added. Um, are, are you the, the the lead vocal on that track? Mm-hmm, that's right. Wow. That's right. I mean, we'll make it the break music, so like, uh, you know, the listeners will know. But you have an amazing voice. Yeah, yes. great job. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> I was not expecting this, but that's why it's the best. I'll, I'll question. take it. Yeah, <laughs> Alexa. Anything else we want to ask? No, I think that's it. Thank you so much, Stefan, for joining. No, thank you all. This has been a joy. Um, this is this is a great experience. Awesome. Thanks so much for joining us, Stefan.